My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. God be one friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put in context. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me, at Jim Kramer. After a day where we got pleasantly cool inflation numbers paired with some suboptimal earnings, the average element didn't do much in Dow inching up 60 points, as it be dipping 0.07%, NASDAQ declining 0.36%. Will that pattern continue? I want to get into the game plan for next week, but first, memo to corporate America. What the heck are you doing reporting next week? So many companies tell their stories this week that nobody's going to pay any attention to you, and you deserve better, especially that Wednesday Fed meeting where a single errant comment on the strong economy could wreck the entire bull thesis. <laughs> then we get the labor report on Friday, the most important piece of data out there. we got to suss through that thing. I know these CEOs aren't going to listen. They don't seem to understand that they can control the stuff and simply report on a different day or week. But I hope you'll listen when I say please don't take any immediate action on any company that reports next week. You won't have enough information, and the market will send you so many misleading signals that your win percentage will be dramatically reduced. Now, with that caveat out of the way, let's deal with the calendar events and what you need to watch for, not act on, but watch for next week. Monday is Steel Day. That's right. When we hear from Cleveland Cliffs and Newcorp. And, uh, you know, two of my favorites. After the Fed took rates up so quickly, normally steel pricing would have been crushed. I have seen steel companies go bankrupt when the Fed does this kind of thing. But we don't have many steel companies left, and the ones we do have are pretty strong. And these are, well, let's just say they all seem to want to merge with each other these days, as we know from Nippon Steel's move to buy U.S. Steel. Newcorp and Cleveland Cliffs have enough business to keep the pricing up, and I think both companies have tremendous scarcity value, although Newcorp's balance sheet is far better than Cleveland Cliffs, just so you know. Uh, again, not for Monday's trading, but you have to like businesses that are protected by the U.S. government, and nothing's more protected from overseas dumping right now than steel. Tuesday morning, Pfizer reports, and I'd say it's too soon to assess what the company's doing with its giant acquisition of CGEN. That is the story right now, and we have to hear the prognosis. General Motors also reports Tuesday. Now, we, we no doubt we'll hear about slowing sales, the derailing of the cruise autonomous driving unit, electric vehicle on we perhaps. The good news, that's all baked into the stock. The bad news, GM stock is incredibly sensitive to interest rates. And if Wednesday's Fed meeting is filled with tougher talk, this stock will go down no matter what Mary Barra says. Could even get hit harder if Friday's labor report shows a big jump in wages, because that means no rate cuts. After the close, we have a classic example of the corporate traffic jam that tries to give me a heart attack every three months as Microsoft, Alphabet, Starbucks, and AMD, and of course, many others I'm not going to mention, all report at roughly the same time. Each has a salient piece of data that can move them. Microsoft needs to tell us about the, its co-pilot AI sales. Alphabet needs to put up better cloud numbers. Starbucks has to address the bizarre pro-Palestinian protests of their stores. I say bizarre because Starbucks has no particular connection to Israel in general or the war in, in, in Gaza in particular. Look, I support peaceful protests against companies that, that you believe are complicit in oppression. I, I did it myself when I was much younger. But whenever you stand on these sta- this issue, Starbucks honestly has nothing to do with it. 
The whole thing's crazy. Unfortunately, they must address these protests on the conference call and how they hurt the quarter so we can try to figure out whether the company can make a comeback from it. As for AMD, it just has to reveal that it's taking huge share from today's true ne'er-do-well, Intel, and then it's off to the races. Wednesday, Fed day, and I'm looking for any clues that the Fed's willing to cut rates if inflation keeps coming down, assuming the economy stays as strong as it is. Those who say that they, don't, they know definitively what they're going to do, don't listen to them. They don't know anything. In the morning, we find out the damage Boeing's going to have because we thought that they could finally clean up that, their 737 max inventory, and now we're not so sure. Boeing's back in purgatory. But once we figure out how much purgatory costs, the buyers will flock, flock right back into the stock because there are only two large-scale commercial aircraft makers, and the other one has no inventory at all. Americans pressed question today and gave you a forecast that was so much better than expected, and stocks shot up 7%, literally taking the Dow Jones average with it. Will MasterCard give you a similar set of numbers? MasterCard's actually a lot more like Visa, which reported a just okay quarter. I think Moz, I quote, will have better results as it's been putting up consistently strong reports. But like everything else, it's a wait-and-see situation, but I have long admired MasterCard. Thursday... I'm just calling it insane, people. Honeywell reports in the morning, and we need to see if it's going to reshuffle the portfolio now that it's just buying the security division from Carrier. I'd like Honeywell to do something transformational. As its portfolio feels a, little un- feels a little unwieldy to me, next, Merck has the best cancer drug of all time, and I want to see what key truth is being used for next. Thursday night, pandemonium. Look at this. Amazon, Apple, and Meta platforms all report at the same time. Again, the key metric. We want to know how much Amazon made on advertising. That's the third leg. You know, we've got the retail, like we've got yeah, Prime, uh, and we have unbelievable Amazon Web Services, but it's the advertising I'm focused on. Apple's about iPhone guidance for next quarter. We don't even care so much about this quarter. And then anything China. Meta's about ads, reels, and any product from the metaverse. Oh, Lordy, who told them to report all at once? Do any of these companies actually think that they'll have our undivided attention that evening? Please, at least one of you, change your earnings cycle. It's not fair to you or your investors. And more importantly, it's not fair to me. Friday, 8.30 a.m., we get the employment report. And I think if this economy doesn't start putting up a 4% unemployment number, meaning some more serious layoffs than we have, then barring some explicit statement from the Fed on Wednesday, we can take the idea of a March rate cut right off the table. I believe the Fed's worried about losing its credibility if they cut and then we get some hotter inflation data, which is certainly a possibility. The aggregate economic numbers need to grow cooler still before the Fed will take action. Friday's also oil day. Jeez, uh, you know, for the longest time, Chevron repeatedly bested Exxon in earnings and replenishment and cash generation. That's not been the case for the last couple of years. We'll examine both. But I think Exxon has the edge once again. By the time we get through next week, we'll have a pretty darn good sense of how five of the super six are doing. Remember, I canned Tesla last night. Gutting the whole Magnificent Seven storyline. The super six pack is so important to this market, and we'll do our best to give you a read on them. But the bottom line, you should expect that next week will overwhelm even the best of the professionals. So don't even think about doing anything yourself unless you've already made up your mind beforehand and don't care about your short-term performance. I want to go to Glenn in my home state of New Jersey. Glenn! Big booyah from New Jersey. How are you, Jim? Ah, man, we love Jersey and we're doing well. How about you? Want to know about GLP, buy, sell, or hold. I hold it in my portfolio. Interesting company. Not, candidly, not my favorite, uh, but I don't want to prejudge. And the last time I looked at it was a little bit before we had some, uh, what I regard as being uh, some problems in the Red Sea. Um, but refined products, this stock has had too much of a move, sir. The refined products companies that, uh, that I like, 
uh, do very, very well. And the one that's best is Sunoco. Thank you, Rusty Brazil, for that excellent piece this morning about how good Sunoco is. Let's go to Patrick, Patrick in Texas. Patrick. Booyah from the sparkling city by the sea, Corpus Christi, Texas, Jim. I'm a oh, first-time yeah. caller. Okay. Uh, founding investment club member, yes. long-time listener, ever since one of my economic students came to me, up to me and asked me if I'd seen the informative, zany, and funny Mad Money on TV. And since then, I've been a, uh, a devotee. Oh, uh, you're so I- kind, Patrick. You know, it's a long week. And, yeah. and I, I just finished my week on a good note because of your phone call. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And if I could just give a shout-out to my... Uh, past and present uh, economics uh, students in, in business economics at uh, Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. Oh, Thank you oh for that. Oh, my God. I want to do the show from Texas A&M. Texas A&M is it's just fabulous school. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. That chat out is a good one. How can I help you? Jim, I wanted to ask you about organic and plant-based oriented grocery stores. We have two in our little town, Natural Grocers, which I believe is too small to discuss yeah. on this show, and uh, Sprouts Farmers Market, SFM is the ticker. It's got about 400 stores, mostly in the southern part of the country. It's always been seen as kind of the poor cousin of Whole Foods, but since they got new management in 2019, um, they've really started to change the shopping experience there. And I think the stock price Movement reflects that. It's up nearly 60% over the last year, with the P.E. still at around 17 and a half. So um, do you think it's time to, to ring the register on this one? Or no, do you think it has no, Patrick. Room? I think you correctly uh, encapsulated everything here. It's got a much better management team. It is doing quite well. It's profitable. It's growing. And yet it sells, as you mentioned, for only about 18 times earnings. I think it's still a buy. And I've been to one. I haven't been to 10 of them. I've been to one. And I think it's a darn exciting place to shop, frankly. Right? So many companies tell their stories next week that nobody's going to get the attention they deserve. So I hope you'll listen when I say don't take immediate action on any company, even if it sounds terrific next week. I'll make money tonight. Tesla's feeling the post-earnings pain. So are investors starting to come around to the idea that there are more EV plays out there that are worth watching? I'm sitting down with the CEO of Rivian from the company's outpost in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And we even got a, a, a pretty cool test drive, frankly. You won't want to miss it. Then FICO was the 14th best performer in the SP 500 last year and has been an amazing performer over the, for years and years. Should investors expect the same amount of predictive data and analytics company in 2024? Because it just got shelled last night. I'm going to talk to the company's top brass. And with the new CEO at the helm, could McCormick add a dash of spice to your portfolio? Do not miss my exclusive. And stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. we do with Rivian, the electric vehicle maker at a time on Wall Street, and more important, maybe the consumer seems to have fallen out of love with their whole product category. It's not just Tesla stock that's been getting killed. I think Rivian, the smaller EV alpha that's most likely become the bankable, viable one, is terrific, but its stock is still down 35% year to date. Didn't help that the company reported mixed fourth quarter production and deliveries results at the beginning of the month. So the question is, do you treat this weakness as a buying opportunity and a high quality operator? Or is it time to write off the whole electric vehicle cohort? 
For now, we can only try to stay close to the story and a vehicle that does still turn a lot of heads when it's on the road. Earlier today, we got a chance to check under the hood of Rivian Automotive, joining CEO R.J. Scaringe at his very cool showroom in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, for a chat. Take a look. R.J., what are we doing here in Williamsburg in what we call a space? Well, I'm excited to have you here. This is, uh, is our Brooklyn space, and we're sitting here next to Rivian R1S. And uh, really excited to tell you a bit more about Rivian. Well, please do, because uh, I think you are the other company, frankly, that's going to make it. No need to emphasize the first car, because that, that, that man sells himself. But tell me why you, are, you think that you can have success in this area. Yeah, so the, what we're sitting next to, this is the, our set of our first launch products, the R1 platform. We have an R1T, a truck, and an R1S, which is the SUV. And that really serves as the flagship for the brand. It, it initiates the world to, to what we're doing, why we're building our products and our brand and our company. Um, and we also have a commercial side of the business where we build commercial vans with the first uh, customer for us being Amazon. Now, uh, when you say build, you actually mean in scale. We have seen other outfits that we've come to uh, know, but they turn out to be boutique. They don't really make a lot of product. You have already made a lot of product. Yeah, uh, our flagship products, the R1T and the R1S, they were the best-selling vehicles of the last two quarters, over $70,000 in the United States. Now, So uh, you're starting to see a lot of them on the road. It's super exciting. My kids love it. Every time they see them, they point it out, and now it's... Every time we drive somewhere, we're pointing out a lot of cars. Well, I, I, have, I actually brought my wife Lisa to this shoot because she finally found something that might be interesting enough that I do after 19 years that. of this program. I love that. Yeah. Now, uh, people tell me, I mean, this is what stands out. How did you come up with this? I know this is a little bit too wonderment, not enough numbers, yeah. but I just think it's so distinctive, and I know you're an engineer. How did you know this would be the right look? I mean, as a new company, a new brand, uh, we, had, we didn't have a heritage from an aesthetic point of view or design point of view. So it afforded us an amazing opportunity to, to sort of say, what does a Rivian look like? And so we had hundreds of different front ends and designs we went through. We ultimately landed on something that was very clean. We wanted it to feel strong, but importantly, we wanted it to have a sense of invitation and friendliness to it. And so the, the, you know, the stadium-shaped headlight with this crossbar was... Um, probably iteration 160 or something. It was a lot of, a lot of different versions we went through. Right, so at the space, uh, do you see people, do you expect that people will be kind of gawking because it's so cool looking? Well, when you're, one of the really wonderful things about the design is the vehicle you can see from very far away. So if I'm, you know, if I'm looking down 10 blocks away and you see a car coming towards you, you can immediately tell if it's a Rivian. So that's been really helpful for us as a new brand. People immediately can connect with and identify what our cars are. But I, I certainly have to go over uh, something you said that is so important that first attracted me to you, which is that you do have a very tight relationship with Amazon. How yep. did that come about? Yes, yeah, so Amazon's one of our largest shareholders, and um, they're both an investor, but they're also a very close partner. And in addition to the consumer side of the business, we wanted to build a set of products on the commercial side that helped accelerate how rapidly large fleets were moving to electric vehicles. And um, the, the largest opportunity that exists out there uh, is Amazon's fleet. And so we had approached Amazon to have sort of broad discussions and it led to ultimately them investing and, and what we now see. Uh, funny as we're saying this in Amazon vehicles uh, sitting out in front of I here. know, that's so, happenstance, you did yeah, not plant that It's just so funny, but so we now have over 10,000 Amazon delivery vans that we built that are fully EV and uh, the drivers love them. They've got all a much better set of creature comforts in terms of usability. But my understanding is uh, 
that Amazon would take, every one you could make, but you still in that last quarter said, we now have the right to be able to sell to other companies. Why do that? Amazon's the best client in the world. Well, we, we'll continue to sell to Amazon, uh, but we want to make sure we have lots of other fleets to yeah. diversify beyond just, just their fleet. Now, uh, the benefit of having worked so closely with Amazon in developing this is it wasn't as if they sent us requirements when we built a vehicle. We worked really collaboratively to understand how do drivers in a delivery space or in a commercial setting use the vehicle. So things like getting in and out, the seat comfort, the driver positioning, visibility, lots of iteration uh, working closely with them. Right. Now, the other day, Elon Musk, I will mention his name, uh, talked about how it's now about affordability, that people mm-hmm. can't afford uh, electric vehicles because rates have gone up, yep. prices are too high. How are you uh, dealing with the notion of your price point yep. and how people can afford it? Uh, and particularly also talk about leasing. Yeah, so uh, again, with these as our flagship products, they, they've been designed to operate at a, at a higher price point. Uh, but really with the goal of, as I said, building the brand. Our next set of products, uh, what we call creatively R2, which is the follow-on to R1, uh, they'll be smaller in terms of form factor, but also much lower price point, but carry the essence of the brand we've created with R1. Um, Now, what we're also seeing, which is important on these, is the level of penetration across multiple different segments. So we have customers that are coming out of minivans, coming out of pickups coming out of SUVs, coming out of premium sedans uh, that are really attracted to the brand that we've put together in the, in the product proposition we put together with R1. Now, uh, there are certain resistance that we've noted. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine from uh, days when I used to be on uh, Wall Street, uh, Steve Schur, the CEO of Hertz, okay. has talked about how we, uh, that he has too many Teslas, that they're yep. not really working, not that functional. There, people are worried about range anxiety. Yeah, yeah. People are worried about not enough charging yeah, yeah. stations. How, about, how do you rebut these presumptions? Well, look, it's, um, this represents, in terms of transportation, this is one of the biggest transitions that the auto industry has ever seen. So moving from combustion-powered vehicles to electric, and there's a lot of aspects that that, that brings with it. New supply chains, new infrastructure around charging, uh, new consumer understanding and behaviors, and charging is absolutely a major focus for us. And as a result, we've, we're building a charging network, a DC fast charge network, Fast uh, charge being how long for uh, something like this? So you like can this? charge something like this. Uh, 25 minutes, you can do an, like an 80% fill up. Okay. Uh, but we've also partnered with Tesla to access their network. Right. Um, but we think this is a really key enabler over the next few years to continue investing in charging infrastructure so that customers have peace of mind to be able to drive from, let's say, New York to a DC. Okay, now we know uh, you're in a period where you can't necessarily talk about numbers other than the numbers that have already been described, yeah. but there are some who feel that uh, initially a uh, big burst of interest now that you've made more uh, cars than you can sell, but yeah. I, I, I can't determine that that to be the case. I, yeah. I, I get that you pretty much are selling everything you make. Yeah, I mean, the, there's always speculation around demand versus production. Right. I think for us, we have... Um, because of our commercial vehicle business, there's some idiosyncrasies around the delivery. And uh, an element that I think was lost is the commercial vans, Amazon doesn't take delivery of commercial vans really from the middle of November through the end of the year because they're so focused on their busiest time of the year. So we end up building up a little bit bit of inventory during that period, which then we burned down over the course of the first half of the fall. Well, where are you in terms of the tax credits? With the next iteration, that would be uh, the nirvana for tax credit. 
Oh, for sure. I mean, so the R2 program has been designed entirely around achieving the $7,500 tax credit associated with vehicle purchase. These vehicles still qualify for uh, half of that for, you know, for, for tax credits, and then our leased vehicles qualify for all of it. So when you lease a Rivian, and you asked about leasing before, uh, you get access to a full $7,500 credit, which is one of the reasons the lease terms are so attractive on the vehicle. All right. Uh, just one more thing. Uh, there are people who think it's peaked, that EVs peaked, that mm-hmm. there, uh, there's an EV on we, that there yeah. was an initial burst of people who want to do the right thing for the yeah. environment. Yeah. That's done and yeah. sated. What do yeah. you say to those people? Well, I think first we have to really take a step back. In the long term, uh, to me, there's zero debate that all of our vehicles will convert to electric. So it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. And in parallel to that, we have a whole host of policies that exist across the world that are going to be driving 100% of new vehicle sales to electric. And in most countries, that's 2035. And in the United States, a number of states, including California, have committed to 2035 as well. So the policies are going to be driving us to convert to electrification. What we as an industry need to do is to create supply of interesting choices for consumers. And what I think we're witnessing today is a lack of choice. There's not enough vehicles across price points and form factors to give people viable alternatives uh, to their combustion vehicles that they've been buying historically. Well, and also you should say, and not enough great looking ones. Yeah, so they need to be great cars across different price points and across different segments. And that's one of the things that has us so excited about our R2 program, the price point being lower, it fits right into the, the meat of the market. Um, and we look at this, the R1 program, it's the best-selling vehicle over $70,000. Well, so, there you go. What I want to do is have it sell itself by getting a, a ride from you. Yeah. How about that? I'd love that. Okay, RJ Scringe is the founder and CEO of Rivian. Let's go for a ride. Let's do it. Coming up, want to score more? Kramer sits down with a company that's done better than fair. Next. This month, intrigued by one of the great performers of our time, I did a deep dive into Fair Isaac Corporation, the predictive data and analytics company, best known for being the keeper of the FICO score, the standard measure of consumer credit risk here in the United States, not to mention 40 other countries. At the time, I told you this is a great company, but recommended waiting for a pullback before you did any buying. Sadly, I was too conservative. Since then, Fair Isaac stock has run up nearly 15% as of last night's close. And while pullback almost 7% today in response to a legitimately uh, questionable quarter, we're going to get to that, though, it, the pullback's off of a much higher base. The stock's doubled in the year. Does the quarter change the story? Fair Isaac missed top and bottom line estimates. And while they reiterated their full year forecast, that was seen as disappointing because the analysts expected better. So is this a buying opportunity or a reason to curb your enthusiasm? Hey, let's take a closer look with Lansing. He's the CEO of Fair Isaac Corporation, a company I most admire and have for a very long time. Mr. Lansing, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks so much. All right, so let me posit something, Will, which is that you made some investments this quarter that were very necessary, including cybersecurity. These were things that we couldn't necessarily think that you might do, but they were, I'm not saying they were artificial, but they were things that were one time that shouldn't make people feel that you have some sort of slowdown in your business. We definitely do not have a slowdown in our business. And, uh, and yes, we're investing heavily and we'll continue to invest heavily in our business. But um, I don't think there's any cause for concern. I think it's right in the plan. Okay, good. We also feel that you're not getting enough credit for what we think is a rather dramatic expansion into software, in part because everyone says, oh, it's FICO, it's terrific. But the money you're putting in software, it, to me, makes it so that your, your uh, PE mobile deserved to even be higher than it is. 
Yeah, well, I certainly agree with you. Um, we don't get that much recognition for our software yet. Um, we're well known for our scores. Almost everyone's heard of us for our scores. We're the cornerstone of the, the credit risk ecosystem. But on the software side, you know, those who know in the financial services industry, they know us. And um, we have made very big investments in, in becoming kind of next generation CRM. And, uh, and as banks today move to, you know, they're all involved in digital transformation. They're all really focused on how do they have these quality inter interactions with their consumers. Um, our software is the most natural way for them to do it. And so the, the investments we've been making are really paying off. Our software business is growing right now over 40% year over year, has been for four years. So is that a land and expand situation you're in and you show them, hey, listen, we, I know you love our stuff. Let me show you what else we've got in the suite. That is exactly it. It's totally land and expand. I mean, what, what, you know, if you think about it, take a step back. We, we have our scores business, and it's a very efficient, low-cost way to make a credit decision about a consumer. And, you know, that we've, we've dominated that space for 35 years. Software lets us bring in additional data. Software lets us apply analytics to a wide range of data. And, you know, although you have diminishing returns after the credit file, you still have some caloric content. You still have some kind of um, predictive value in these incremental bits of data. Our software captures all that, and then we apply fancy analytics and make a, a, an even higher quality decision. Okay, that, that's important because we've had fintechs come on our own show. Actually, one company came on, on our show and said that you're obsolete. Actually, use that word. Okay, said obsolete because they're using AI-powered lending decisions that are much more accurate than what you get from FICO. I ought to give you a chance to just say, listen, that, that, that person was uh, misguided in making that charge. Well... I would say that person was misguided in making that charge. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, that person is a big user of FICO scores. Uh, so here's the thing. Um, it, the most predictive data set for uh, making a credit decision is the credit file. It's, credit, it's, it's your credit payment history. If you want to know, is someone going to pay you back in the future, what better place to look than have they paid you back in the past? And that's your credit payment history. So the FICO score is built on that. And it's the number one best, most predictive data set. Not the only one, right. but the best one. Now, you can add more data sets and get more value and improve the quality of the predictions. And that's what all these fintechs do. They, they have their secret sauce. But frankly, if a FICO score is available, you're out of your mind not to use it. It's the single most predictive thing there is. So what they typically do is they'll pull a FICO score and then they apply their secret sauce on top of it. And that's fine. We encourage that. Big banks do it. We help them to do it. But the FICO score, remain, the FICO score remains the, the cornerstone of this whole thing. Well, I'm glad you said that because I felt that uh, and I didn't know that some of these fintechs were using you. I, they made it sound like that that yours was anti-democratic somehow that like that you actually somehow discriminated. I mean, these are numbers. It's inconceivable that you do that. Uh, it seemed to be wrong to charge that you have made it so that some people are never going to get credit. I, 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 was, I was thinking, should I ask them that? Because it's so patently untrue. But I got to just tell you that there are people saying this stuff. No, it's, it's not accurate. I mean, there, there's actually no more fair way of getting credit into the hands of consumers than the FICO score. We score 250 million people. It's a very large population. We do it with science, with impartiality, with fairness. It passes regulatory muster. It meets fair lending kinds of things. I mean, there's not a better tool. It's a great tool. Now, can you augment it? Absolutely. That's what our software does. That's what these fintechs do. And we encourage it. 
but um, the, the FICO score is always the starting point. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you is that one of the reasons why we featured you is we thought that, that we said that people would think if you raise rates, raise, 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 the company that would really get killed is Fair Isaac. And then your stock doubled. And the answer was because people didn't understand what you guys really do. You are not correlated necessarily to mortgage rates or else your stock wouldn't have doubled last year. Well, it's interesting. Well, there is a relationship. There's definitely a relationship. And we benefit from rates coming down because as rates come down, there's more mortgage volume, more mortgage volume. They pull more mortgage scores, and that's revenue and profit for us. However, volume is not the only lever. And so, you know, we, we, you know there's, there's obviously a price lever. There's other products where we innovate and, and sell those. We have products that work. Uh, they're, in, they're countercyclical that really work in a downturn, like our, our resiliency index helps you to understand what's the behavior of a consumer in a downturn. So we have products designed to offset some of those kinds of things. Well, look, I think your company's terrific, and we're getting a chance to buy it again uh, at a discount that I did not foresee. I want to thank Will Lansing, CEO of FICO, for coming on our show. Hey, it was really great that you came on. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And Mike's back after the break. Coming up, kick up the spice. Kramer goes one-on-one with a stock that may be to your taste. Next. Are things finally turning at McCormick, the big maker of spices, sauces, and seasonings? Been struggling for a couple of years and had to raise prices to offset some of these higher costs, something that eventually drove some consumers away. Now, I bring this up because when McCormick reported yesterday, they delivered what I, even they, I think, would say is a mixed set of numbers. Softer than expected sales paired with a modest earnings beat, and the full year forecast was tad-like. Yet the stock rallied 4% yesterday in response, in part because I think management laid out a very credible plan for boosting volume growth again next year without sacrificing margins. So could this be the true turning point for what I guess you consider to be a down-down stock? Let's check in with Brendan Foley. He's the new president and CEO of McCormick. Get a better read on the quarter. What's to come next? Mr. Foley, welcome to Man Money. Thank you, Jim. Brendan, I am looking at some of the finest household brands. And if you looked at my pantry, it's the same as this pantry. And yet the... The growth here is not what it used to be. So I'm trying to figure out why, because I always buy your brands. and I thought everybody does. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, you know, right now, this is I'm in my first four months as CEO, and this is my first full year. And I'm really excited and just really optimistic about where our business is headed right now. You know, as we look at 2024, it's a year of investment for us as we think about it. And what we're focused on, you know, kind of really addressing some of the things you just said. It's really driving the business with a lot more volume growth. And it's going to be a lot of big investments in advertising, really taking that up. We're even taking a look at price points and really thinking about price gap management a little bit more. But it's also even more innovation than we launched last year. So this is going to be an exciting year for us as we look at. But we're also entering the year with some realistic expectations about where the consumer is. And that's influencing a little bit of how we think about things right now. Overall, but, but, but you're, you were talking about plus or minus one percent growth. This is one of the greatest growth companies of all time. Well, we're, we're right now as we look at our business, we're putting a lot more investment in there. We're focusing on that volume growth, and throughout the year, we're going to shift to volume growth by the time we get into the second quarter, the second half. Now, uh, we've been around uh, thirty years ago in April. Uh, there was a thing called Marlboro Friday where Marlboro famously slashed their prices. Everyone said it was a bad idea. It turned out to be a big turning point that crushed all their competition. You have the best brands. The other guys who are nipping are brands I don't know. I would never buy, but maybe people are, look, I'm a, I'm a 
I'm a choosy consumer because I trust your brand. But is it possible that if you just took them all down, you could start over again? Or is that not what you can do? You can't do a giant reset. Yeah, we spend a lot of time understanding consumer behavior. And that's really important, I think, during this period of time. And what we're seeing in this consumer behavior is they're, they're taking more trips to the store, but they're putting fewer items in their basket. And they're also kind of trading down to some smaller unit sizes, too. And so as we think about the, the consumer, they're really trying to creatively stretch their dollar. That's where we need to meet them is make sure that our products are really at the right price points to keep, start driving volume growth again after a period of really high inflation. Right. Now, you had to take price. It was unfair what you, had, what you bought. You had to make some money off of it. But at the same time, when you have a brand like this, a hot brand, and, you know, I mean hot physically, whatever, I, I would think that there's a lot of price flexibility because I don't know any other hot sauce that a lot of people would ever use. You know, value and volume are important to the business, and so is margin. And so we have to think about balancing all of those. But this is so hard. You just started. I mean, you really have to trade. I mean, I was shocked. I mean, this morning I was talking to Steve Squire. He's the CEO of American Express. People, 11%. People are dining out, and yet they're also price conscious? Isn't it kind of counterintuitive? Well, when you start to take a look at the consumer trends and everything, no, it's not. They still want to treat themselves. They still want to go out. You know, it's an opportunity. Whether, whether or not it's eating at home or it's eating at a restaurant, it's really good for McCormick. We operate in both spaces. And so that's still an opportunity for us as we think about it. And consumers are really thinking about how they're going to stretch that dollar. They still want to splurge on themselves. So we still see some growth in food service. Now, uh, you've got some bright spots overseas, international, where things are, are really humming, some, some big growth there. Can you put more money toward that, or is that just doesn't work like that? Well, we're still thinking about growth in those markets, right? too, whether it be EMEA, an important region for us, as well as Asia Pacific, which includes China. Also a big long-term market for us. They're receiving that increased investment, too. Okay, when you say increased investment, I'm sure some of our viewers are saying, well, what does that mean? Is he trying to come up with many more red, you know, hot sauce or, say, or advertising more or uh, giving the stores more to put it in a better place? What do you regard as investment so our people who are not in the industry know what that means? I, it starts with supporting our brands. We have great brands. And so when we look at it, it's increased advertising and promotion really against that, increased advertising. And we also think about increased innovation. You know, in 2024, we're going to launch even more innovation than we did in 23. You know, one of the big things that we're doing is we're really rolling out a new package for uh, our core product. It's a renovation, if you will, around our packaging. Consumers want freshness yes. in our category. Yes. That's what they're looking for. So what we did, we designed this so that before we package it off the consumer, we remove oxygen from the bottle so it stays fresher. Now when they open it, they kind of get a snap. You can put oh. a measuring spoon in there now. Here's the best thing. People want to see the spice name and the best by date printed on the lid. Yes. It's not printed on the lid. And so we're delivering a lot on what consumers are looking for and really listening to what their needs are to make sure our brand experience is the best it can well, be. Well, you got to do that. I know. I mean, you got to rethink everything to some degree because it's tough. You can't keep raising price. You know, that doesn't work. Now, I have one idea for you yeah. that I'm going to suggest. If there's a team. That if it goes all the way, and it's from Baltimore, will you, re- will you bring out, once again, your Baltimore... Absolutely. You yes. put a Raven, Raven can't, but how about if it's San Francisco? We're already talking, well, you know, we love all football teams, but we certainly <laughs> love Baltimore and the Ravens. And so, yes, that's going to make its way on our package. Well, that's, you know, I, I, bought, I bought 20 of them. I thought it was the coolest thing. <laughs> and one of them was always on my uh, table at our old site. And I hope that you do it again. You send me some because I love this more than anything on the table. But those of us who know brands, 
know that your brand is going to, you'll figure out a way to make this thing because the stock wouldn't have gone up yesterday unless everyone knows that you got a handle on it and it's ready to roll. I believe that. That's Brendan Foley's president CEO of McCormick. Thanks for coming on. Mid Money's back after the break. Thank you, Jim. Coming up, pop open those umbrellas and tee up your toughest questions. Kramer takes on all comers in the lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. We're going to start with Peter in Oklahoma. Peter! Jimmy, I'm sending you a big booyah from Yukon, Oklahoma. How you doing? That's the best kind of booyah I can get. I got it to Yukon, Oklahoma, dynamite. What's going on? A uh, calling about CEG, Constellation Energy Group, buy, sell, or hold. We like those guys so much. We had them on, and I just said, this thing is just all the kind of energy that I like under one roof. Good call. Martin in New Jersey. Martin. Love it, Martin. Huh. Martin? No, you know what? Why don't we go to, to Peru? Peru in California, hey, Peru. Jim, how are you? I am good. How are you? Booyah. Perfect. I'm wondering about Chegg. It's a digital learning platform. Oh, Cheap I know. Eight. And I feel badly. I, I can't get into it. I mean, you got the chat. You got the tensions. You got the people not wanting to pay up anymore. I don't know. I think it's an exploratory situation, but I cannot press the buy button. Hey, you know what? Let's go to Peter in Illinois. Peter. Hey, Jim. Thanks a lot. Uh, happy Friday. Indeed. Uh, I've been watching you. I've been watching you since Kudlow and Kramer days. Oh my! I mean, jeez, that dates me. What's happening? <laughs> I was, I was wondering what your thoughts were about Timken, the roller bearing company. Oh, I like Timken. It's so cheap down here. I think it's real good. I went on. I went to Timken with my executive producer, uh, and you know, I she floor was she almost jumped into the you almost jumped into the big uh, you know thing like in Terminator. Too, when he you know, lowered him down into the steel milk thing. Okay, anyway, trust me. Gary in Wisconsin. Gary. Booyah, Jim. Yeah. Booyah Friday. Booyah Friday I'm is on, right. I'm on Medicare, and I'm paying $300 a month in premium. The the Medicare Advantage from United Health. I have a huge, I got a lot of investment in United Health. The United Health premium is eighteen dollars, and mm-hmm. I get and I get healthcare, vision, hearing, dental. Get to go to the gym and over-the-counter drugs and all that stuff. Right now, if if what? Well, well, I just tell you right now, I, I'm not touching that group. United Health, Humana, that group is in a massive reset, and no one knows. I have to tell you, as much as I respect the work of all these companies, they don't they have no idea what's going on in their own business right now. And I cannot recommend a company where they right now, let me tell you, if I were in their boardroom right now, here's what they're saying. Anyway, there it is. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. 
Coming up, what Intel's recent results say about traders versus investors. Let the chips fall? Kramer says, not so fast. Next. Every earnings season, there's a constant battle between headline readers and investors with institutional knowledge. And far more often than not, institutional knowledge is what wins the day. Take the pin action from Intel. Last night, Intel reported a decent quarter but gave miserable forecasts. With dramatically lower gross margins, instantly saw this huge burst of selling in the semiconductor stocks. All of them, with Intel leading the way, only down 12%. But there was plenty of weakness in Intel's main competitor, AMD, too. Why not? The headlines made it sound like there's a broad semiconductor weakness, so all the chip stocks should get hurt. But you see, if you have any institutional memory, you'd know that Intel's in a total dogfight with AMD over large customers. Of course, Intel isn't going to tell any journalists or analysts, for that matter, that AMD's eating their lunch, which is why their margin forecast was so dismal. I think that's the reality, though, which is why you had to buy AMD into that initial bout of weakness as the stock spent the rest of the day rebounding from its lows, and I think it's going to continue to do so. Or how about American Express? Okay, it gave you a huge full-year forecast. Beat. I mean, it's amazing. It's spectacular. Much better than expected. Stock looked like it opened up a couple of bucks. I said to my team, come on, it's going to go much, much higher. Why? Because in November, Marcus Express told us that October sales were a little light. That meant there'd be plenty of short sellers in the stock, people betting against the stock. The trick here, you need to know that when a hedge fund hears that there's weakness in the quarter, and yet the stock keeps going up, they instinctively want to short that stock six ways to Sunday. Remember, many hedge funds actually need to find short positions as part of what you might call their charter. If I were on a trading desk, I'd say these short sellers were hung because there were too many people betting against the same stock. So when America's Best delivered this great guidance, we got a short squeeze of incredible portions. It drove the stock up 7% and even propelled the Dow into, into positive territory. You know, we saw the same thing happen the day before with United Rentals, URI, the machinery rental company, with a stock that tends to be clobbered if it misses, actually delivered an upside surprise, though. And its stock soared 70 points. Oh, come on. That's not fundamental buyers, people. That short sellers admitting they blew it and having to close out their positions because they no longer have a leg to stand on. And when shorts want to get out, they need to buy, buy, buy. If you didn't know the institutional history of how these two stocks trade, you might have sold them up a couple of bucks. There are two reasons I rarely advocate trading anymore on this show or with the club, even though I traded professionally for many, many years. First, if it's a need for speed situation, you'll always be beaten by the high speed traders who can act within milliseconds. Even if you're trading full time, they can buy or sell much faster than you can. And most people can't afford to trade full time. Second, most traders don't have long term institutional knowledge about how lots of stocks tend to behave. Stocks behave in different ways. For example, yesterday we sold the stock of Caterpillar for the Travel Trust, a company I like very much. We did so because the stock had moved up greatly in sympathy with United Rentals, which rents out big machinery like excavators, scissor lifts. I've interviewed them many times, and they always made sure to tell me that they don't use cat for their rentals. Sure, companies can instantly change stripes. Hey, maybe they just bought a bunch of cat for their fleets. But Caterpillar ran 10 bucks on United Rentals numbers, and that was nuts. It changed the risk reward for the stock, not for the company. At moments like this, sadly, the actual worth of the company isn't paramount. It's the battle of the bulls versus the bears that determines the stock's direction. You're at the mercy of the mechanics of the market right now, and that's a tough situation, even when you know how those mechanics work. 
I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise try to find it just for you right here at Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you Monday. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.